Hello to all listeners and welcome back to the fourth episode of my podcast The Dead Hand La Manito Muerta By the way, there is also a Hebrew version for the podcast. So if you have any friends who speak Hebrew in Israel or elsewhere, feel free to share with them the podcast you enjoy listening to. For your convenience, I've included the link in the podcast description. Moving on. In the previous chapter, I told you why I chose to include only 11 stories in my book. As a symbol of September 11th, 1973, the day of the military coup in Chile, a day that transformed the lives of my family and tens of thousands of other families in Chile. So today I want to take you to days like that, days that mark our lives forever. What is the meaning, the feeling of waking up in the morning and hearing on the news that La Moneda, the presidential palace, has been bombed, that the president has been killed, and that the army is patrolling the streets, arresting people, shooting others, and realizing that the soldiers might be on their way to your home. Before the main topic, I would like to share with you a happy moment I recently experienced. A few weeks ago, I was approached by a young man, a Chilean psychologist, who moved to Israel several months ago. I didn't know him or his family before he approached me. One of the creative ways he has adopted to learn and improve his Hebrew is to listen to podcasts. As fate would have it, he came across my podcast and was hooked. He listened to all the episodes text me and ask to meet me and buy a copy of one of my books. I was excited. Here was a perfect stranger, the first podcast listener to reach out, crossing that virtual line between creator and content consumer. We met for coffee in Tel Aviv. I met a young man, same age as my oldest son. First, we talked about our families and friends back in Chile, searching for connections and common ground through them. Then, we talked about politics and social issues. It was so interesting to hear about the effects of the dictatorship in Chile from a young man's perspective who was born almost a decade after it ended. It reminded me that when cousins and friends of mine in Chile reached the age of 18 and went to college, and some chose professions like journalism or law. I'd be stunned. How can one major in such a profession in a country where there is no freedom of speech, where basic rights are denied from so many? Or even worse, how can professors teach with whole hearts such professions. Anyways, thank you, Daniel, for reaching out. Yes, his name is also Daniel, which, 
brought us even closer. In Spanish, we call it tocayo, an affection word for people that share the same first name. He is my namesake. Now, we can really start episode number four called Delicious Paper. Not many people can point to one specific day that changed their lives 180 degrees and forever. It could be a joyous event. For example, the day you won the lottery in some imaginary prize. Or maybe the romantics among us will say the day I met my sweetheart. But it could also be a tragic event, such as the start of a war. Think about what the people of Ukraine, who have been under fire for almost two years, are going through. Or Syrian refugees, who were forced to flee their country without knowing if and when they would be able to return to their homeland. People who were taken to extermination camps during the Holocaust in World War II. And sadly, in recent events, last October 7th, nicknamed the Black Sabbath in Israel, a terror attack by Hamas, killing more than 1,500 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapping 240 civilians, many of them still in captivity even two months later. And in the following weeks to that attack, we can also think of the thousands of civilians killed in Gaza. All these people their lives changed forever in a traumatic event. These are just a few examples. Surely you can think of many other populations whose suffering you encountered or perhaps you experienced personally. So we're dealing with political or historical events, events that for most people may be a difficult day, but within a certain time, will be able to restore order to their lives, while for others it may be a turning point, after which nothing will be the same. A day that will leave them wondering, what would have happened if it hadn't been for... And you can fill the blanks here. So, what is the most traumatic political event you know or remember in your country. Write to me. I'd love to know. I assume that most Israelis might say, at least until two months ago, the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Almost every one of us, at least those who are 35 or older, can tell exactly where this event caught them. What were they doing in that precise moment when they heard the news, even if it was the most trite and insignificant action, and what kind of feelings evoked when they heard about the assassination for the first time. On November 4th, 1995, the day Rabin was assassinated, my then-wife Daphna and I were young students with our first son, Yarden, who was six months old. We lived in Tel Aviv, and in the evening, like many others, 
we went to the rally in support of the Oslo Peace Agreements. We made a small cardboard pennant for my baby son with the inscription, I want peace. The simplest, most innocent message. And I carried him on my shoulders. His eyes were wide open, amazed, as if trying to swallow everything he saw, being in front of hundreds of thousands of people gathered together. There was music and singers who performed, a real happening, and speeches by social activists, artists, and politicians. And in the process, we met more and more familiar faces of friends and acquaintances who, like us, came to the square. A brotherhood of people who want to live in peace, who still believe it is possible. However, at a certain point, we felt that the atmosphere was changing. Brotherhood of peace, of shared destiny, to a dangerous, tense atmosphere. Even though there were no real manifestations of violence around us, but something in the air changed. And as new parents, with an alert and active sense of responsibility, perhaps even a little exaggerated, we decided that it was time to fold home. Even though Rabin was scheduled to give a speech later on, and everyone was waiting to hear him. We went home, put Yarden to bed, and started watching a movie, just to change the atmosphere a bit. In the middle of the movie, Claudio, my brother, who was with us at the demonstration, called and shouted into the phone, Rabin was shot! Rabin was shot! Come on, stop! I replied, used to his attempts to prank me. We're watching a movie on Channel 2, and they would have definitely stopped the movie and broke out in a newsflash. Not nice, bro. Don't make fun of such an issue. No, really, my brother justified. I turn on the TV to hear estimates of how many people were in the square. The Israeli channels are all still in shock and they're still not reporting anything. Go to CNN. By the way, it is estimated that 400,000 people were present in the square that evening. I switched the channel reluctantly, still completely skeptical, frustrated that he was sure to make fun of me for falling into the gullible trap. Instead, my heart dropped to the floor. They shot Rabin, they really did. It is something you don't want to believe. Hoping soon they'll say it is an April Fool's hoax in the middle of November. I was in shock, like bitten by a snake. I couldn't go to sleep. I couldn't stay idle. Daphna understood my deep sorrow and motioned to me with her eyes. Go, I'll stay with the baby. I wandered the streets sleepwalking, and many others walk the moon-stricken streets just like me, exchanging glances of agony. Of course, I had thoughts about Chile. I don't know how, but I ended up at the entrance to the hospital where they took Rabin after the shooting. We stood there, 
strangers who had become brothers for a very specific moment, hoping for a miracle, hoping that the news would come out that he had been treated, operated on, and now in a stable condition. Suddenly, my cell phone rang, and on the line were Jewish relatives from Chile who had already heard about the assassination attempt. Bear in mind, in 95, international calls were still very expensive, and on a mobile phone, the recipient of the call was also charged. But who cared? Then, in the middle of the conversation, Aiton Haber, Rabin's bureau's chief, came outside and announced. ממשלת ישראל מודיעה בתדהמה, בצער רב וביגון עמוק, על מותו של ראש הממשלה ושר הביטחון יצחק רבין, אשר נרצח בידי מתנקש הערב בתל אביב. The Israeli government announces with astonishment, great agony and deep sorrow the death of the Prime Minister and Minister of Defense, Yitzhak Rabin, who was murdered by an assassin this evening in Tel Aviv. By the way, this is the original recording of that night. After the announcement, people just dropped to the floor, crying, not believing. I was with a group of people on the sidewalk in front of the ambulance driveway, respecting the velvet rope they had placed there, as if we were in line to enter an exclusive nightclub. But as soon as the announcement came out, a lot of people jumped up and crossed the rope and ran to the entrance area of the hospital, where a podium was placed and a large group of journalists around it, as if they wanted to touch Rabin's moment of death. On the grass was a group of teenagers in blue shirts, members of a youth movement who began to sob in despair, but quickly came to their senses and began to sing a song of peace in a soft voice. Leah, Rabin's wife, was there among the dozens of people surrounding her and shouted over and over again, Why didn't they shoot me? Such a pity! Why didn't they shoot me? That was Rabin's assassination. Let's run the tape 28 years ahead. Today, in 2023, we are facing another traumatic moment, with over 240 civilians kidnapped and being held captive in the Gaza Strip, and an exchange of missiles and bombs between Israel and Hamas claiming the lives of thousands of people. Only a few weeks ago, many of us were manifesting in the streets every week, mourning for the death of Israel's democracy, the direct result of the judicial reform that the government wanted to impose. Let's jump back into our time machine again and leap from Rabin's assassination six years forward to September 11th, 2001. We, at that time, were living in Boston, and on the morning of 9-11, I was on my way to a business meeting 
in some southern suburb with an associate. 9 a.m. and we were late and lost. We couldn't find the address of our meeting. We were both hunched over Rand McNeely's map book. There was no Waze or Google Maps on those days when suddenly a call came in from Daphna. Danny, listen. They just reported about an airplane crashing into one of the Twin Towers. Wow, that's crazy. What are the odds? We both concluded that it must be some small Cessna plane, some unfortunate mistake by a drunk pilot or something similar. But I was nervous, late to the meeting, winding through unfamiliar streets and quickly said goodbye to Daphna. We'll talk about it at home. Twenty minutes later, we are finally in the parking lot of the building and Daphna calls again. What now? I barked at her. We are about to enter the meeting and we are very late. Danny, a second plane just crashed into the other tower. There's live footage on TV. And Danny, it's not a small plane like we thought. Oh no, it's a hundred percent a terrorist attack. We both said at the same time, with our sharp Israeli senses. Not that there was any need for them, because there is absolutely no chance that two planes will collide on the same day, 20 minutes apart, into these two iconic buildings of New York. My business associate and I ran into the building, and all the employees there of the various offices were already glued to the TV screen in the lobby mesmerized, pale, crying. Our meeting, of course, did not take place. After half an hour, we drove back silently to Boston. I dropped my partner off at his house and continued home. Six-year-old Yarden was at school, and Carmel, a two-year-old baby girl, at home with us. A deep and oppressive grief settled in our hearts. I remembered lying with my clothes on the bed, still in a suit and tie, paralyzed, unable to stop watching reports that were more dramatic each time, when the significance of the attack began to become clearer, as well as the magnitude of the disaster. Reports of additional planes in the air on the way to hit various targets. An atmosphere of panic, because no one knew how many more planes that the terrorist had taken over. The moment that I broke was seeing people jump to their deaths from the 80th floor because they realized that the rescue forces will not arrive in time to rescue them from the fire that broke out. These are the people whose families' lives have changed forever. For them, life will not return to normal. Then, when the buildings collapsed like a tower of cards in an endless cloud of smoke and dust and cement, I completely crashed. I cried and I felt a real heartache, my chest shrinking. We forced ourselves to turn off the TV. Like in Memorial Day for the victims of the Holocaust back in Israel. Every year, I promised myself not to get dragged into the TV documental shows, the personal stories, because it crushes me. And without me noticing, 
I'm dragged and dive and can't disconnect. And when you think you've heard the war stories, suddenly, every year, you hear more horrifying testimonies. I was completely dysfunctional that day, and I don't remember how or why, but the next day, I managed to get up and free myself from that paralysis. Daphna, once again, with a glance, motioned to me. I'll take care of the kids. And I found myself, like after Rabin's assassination, jaywalking, arriving downtown in front of the Westin Hotel, because a rumor started circulating that the terrorist squad had stayed at this hotel the night before, and now some of them are still barricaded there. There were masses of people and plenty of security forces there. The desire to touch death caught up with me too. Now let's go back in time, exactly 28 years to September 11th, 1973, the day the president of Chile, Salvador Allende, was assassinated and with him the Chilean democracy. And as a result, tens of thousands of people paid with their dreams and lives including us. As you may recall, we lived at the time in the town of Chuquicamata, in northern Chile, in the Atacama Desert, which is the most arid desert in the world. My father was appointed director of the copper mines there at the beginning of 1971, and we left behind the bustling, modern, vibrant city, our extended family, and moved to the periphery, which in terms of copper mining technology was advanced. But socially, it was like going back a few decades, if not more. When we arrived there, I was a little boy, only four years old, but it was impossible not to feel the community sensation of a national mission that spread among all the people who wanted to create a new more just, more egalitarian society. Many families came with us from Santiago. Engineers for the mines, doctors who came to build the new hospital, media people, and political functionaries. When we arrived, we were allocated some monstrous palace in a neighborhood called Campamento Americano, the mine professionals' neighborhood. They called it that because in the past, the mines were owned by the United States private corporations. The house they wanted to give us was actually more like a castle, with 54 rooms and 8 bathrooms, as befits the new CEO arriving from Santiago, they must have thought. My father was so preoccupied with his work that it didn't matter to him if they gave him a cabin or a castle, but my mother strongly objected. We're a young family with three small children, she said. We are communists. There is no way we would live in such a castle. What a waste. The people in charge twisted their faces because this meant they had a new task, which was to find us another more suitable house. And my mother suggested that they turn the suggested castle 
into a kindergarten complex. And so it was. Nine kindergartens were established in this house for the families of the local miners. In this small act, my mom immediately gained great sympathy from the locals. Mother, who left her research job at the university in Santiago, devoted herself entirely to the role of the wife of the CEO, initiating and contributing to all kinds of social initiatives. The miners in our region were doing very well economically compared to other blue-collar workers in the country because of the political and economic importance of copper. But in other respects, such as society and culture, they were just as scarce as the rest of the working class in the country. Another project my mother undertook was to establish a public library to lend and give books to the workers' families. An amusing anecdote in Nigeria, many miners would come to the new library and ask to purchase books of a certain size. Uh, please give me 20 books that are 6 inches tall by 3 inches wide. What? Are you crazy? What does size matter? Mom asked. Uh, these are the dimensions of the bookshelf we bought, the miners would reply. The content of the books was not important to them. They just wanted to please the new directors who came from Santiago. You want us to be civilized, don't you? So, the transition, as I said, was not easy, because everything was different. The climate, the culture, the distance from our family, especially life in Santiago within the Jewish community. Whereas here, we came to a very conservative Catholic society, which was also characterized by ancient anti-Semitism of the Middle Ages, which was assimilated among the children's people by the Spanish conquistadors. Here, it was believed that Jews were really sacrificing Catholic children on Passover, and my friends in kindergarten marveled at finding in me, the Jewish kid, such a nice friend, a normal child and asked to pat me on the head to see if I really had horns. A year later, as a first grader, attending religion classes was mandatory, and I declared that there is no God. As befits the atheist education I received at home, if the teacher insisted on his existence, please show him to me under a microscope. My parents have never been prouder when I was suspended from school and they were required to come to the principal's office. Another characteristic from the period I remember was political identity. Throughout Chile, it was considered a pride to belong politically, whether on the right or the left. We went to youth movements accordingly. Being a leftist was very fashionable because it meant always being there for the underdogs, and that included, of course, opposing the damn Yankees. Yankees, go home. There was a famous comic book with a popular character called Condorito, which is a small condor, a Homeric pamphlet 
which had very socialist messages. Condorito's dog, for example, was named Washington, and he is always seen urinating on the wall, a little bite to our neighbors from the north. When you have that might so powerful that you cannot resist, and that is suffocating your country politically and economically, humor is about the only card you have left. That is why you will find in all South American countries popular resentment and anger towards the gringos. But let's get back to the story. Into this atmosphere of pioneering in the desert, of very high political awareness, comes the day of the military coup. Since we lived in the northern desert, 1,200 kilometers from the capital of Santiago, we had the relative advantage of a few hours to digest the events and decide how to act upon. My father was ordered by the party to go underground and hide for a few days to see where the winds were blowing. He called my mother on the phone, asked her to take the children and go to the house of the Encalada family. Carlos, the father, was a colleague of my father at work, but he was not as politically involved as my father, so it was decided that we would be safe there. Dad spent the next few days moving from one safe haven to another, while another party member, a teacher, volunteered at his own peril, driving him whenever it was decided to change the location. I met his daughter 50 years later during my visit to Chile in September of 2022. At the Encalada house, there were three other families with us. So at least for me as a child, there was a fun atmosphere of uh, almost like a summer camp or vacation. For the older children, let alone the adults, these were much more tense days listening to the news and anxiously waiting to see what was happening. I was safer, but my siblings understood that my father's life was in real danger. By evening time, soldiers came to the Encalada's house, asked about my father's whereabouts, and told my mother they would accompany her home where she could enter and take only two suitcases of personal things, clothes, toys, no documents. When mom arrived at the house, it was a complete mess. It was evident that the soldiers were there before, searching for documents, and not too gently. The next day, similarly, mom was invited to come to dad's office to pick up personal belongings. There was a real fear that this might be a trap, a dangerous setup to arrest her away from the public eye. And at the end, the adults decided that mom would go there accompanied by her friend Alda Encalada, the mother of the family we were staying with. The soldiers would not dare harm her in the presence of another uninvolved woman, they hoped. To her surprise, the office was, contrary to what she had experienced in our house the night before, neat, clean. It was evident that a search had been carried out, but not as brutal as was done in the house. Mother began to collect all kinds of personal belongings, framed pictures, a tie left in a hanger, with Alda and the officer in charge 
respecting, standing aside, and watching her, when suddenly she found in one of the drawers a note with the names of party members with their addresses and phone numbers on it. Probably because of her surprised expression, the officer noticed that she had encountered something of importance and approached her. Mom, without thinking, wrinkled the note and put it in her mouth, chewing it quickly and trying to swallow it as quickly as possible. The officer became furious, almost hitting her, but on second thought he stopped himself, realizing that this note, at least, was already lost. From now on, we continue collecting things together, he said. Ah, paper has never tasted better. After four days, my father turned himself into the hands of this officer, in exchange for a promise that we, the family, would be allowed to return safely to Santiago. Dad was tried in a ridiculous field trial, which lasted five minutes at the most, without a lawyer to represent him, and was accused with two charges, stealing $13 million in cash from the mine's safe box and selling uranium secrets to the Soviet Union, and for that he was sentenced to 13 years in prison. A year for every million, we used to laugh when we were kids. These charges were a joke, because in the safe at the time, they used to keep cash equivalent to two months of salaries for all employees in the mine, held as an emergency step. And this amount did not come close to even one-tenth of what they accused my dad of stealing. And regarding the second charge of selling uranium secrets to the Soviet Union, well, back then, there was no uranium production in Chile. So, come on. At least invent a more logical lie to charge him with. This sentence, as you can understand, made us very angry, very frustrated. And only decades later, we will come to understand that this was the officer's way of saving my father. Here he was sentenced to imprisonment and therefore will be sent to the penitentiary in Santiago to serve his sentence. The officer knew already that a commando unit was flown to the south of the country in two helicopters in a campaign to terminate all the power centers affiliated with the throne government. And that unit, headed by a general called Arellano Stark, killed everybody on site on each of the locations they visited. The officer in our town knew that this unit will be sent next to the north right after they finish the trip to the south, with clear orders to kill everyone connected to the previous government. The mission was named Operation Condor and was later on chillingly dubbed the Death Convoy. And indeed, about a month later, 19 detainees in the city of Kalama were taken by this unit into the desert and shot to death 
and their bodies were dumped there. There is a touching documentary called Nostalgia of the Light by director Patricio Guzman, which tells about the women of the desert who for decades searched the desert looking for the bodies of their loved ones, as if searching for a needle in a haystack. Husbands, brothers, sons, fathers, whose murdered bodies disappeared, and the help to these women came from an unexpected source. The Chilean desert is one of the best places in the world for stargazing, so there are many observatories of stars, with international teams as astronomers, and they harnessed their precious equipment and turned it from the sky into the desert soil to search for the bodies of the murdered one. Since the scientists posted there were foreign nationals, renowned astronomers, they could take certain actions that Chilean citizens could not. The film is made with a meticulous sense of art and aesthetics, which further emphasize the terrible crime. And thanks to the dryness of the desert, bones were preserved for many years. And some of these brave women manage, after many years of searching, to find bones that in DNA tests were able to identify and associate with their murdered family members. It is a luxury of closure, of relief and peace of mind, a luxury that we, the Silberman family, have not yet received. A few years ago, I organized a screening evening for the film at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation offices in Tel Aviv, and we held afterwards a panel discussion in which the famous Chilean writer and playwright Ariel Dorfman was also present virtually. Dorfman studied with my father in the Jewish school in Santiago when they were kids, and later on I got to meet him in the United States while touring for one of his books. His most famous work, you may have read the book or seen the play, The Maiden and the Death, tells the story of a woman, after the dictatorship years are over, who is invited to dinner with some friends. Also present at this dinner is a man whom she recognizes by his voice as the man who tortured and sexually abused her while she was detained because throughout her detention, she was blindfolded. This was the practice in all torture houses. The book, which was dramatized, deals with moral questions such as hatred, forgiveness, revenge, and more. Even here in Israel, the play was staged in the Haifa Theater, and as a teenager, I went to see the play, and let me tell you, it took a huge mental effort to watch it all the way till the end. By the way, the same officer who sentenced my father, and in fact granted him with another year of life, by saving him from the death squads, I was privileged to meet in 1991, on my first visit back to Chile. For that act at the field trial of my father, and a number of other people, the officer was imprisoned for two years 
severely tortured, at the end of which he was released, his rank revoked, and he was expelled from the army with disgrace, without pension or any compensation. A kind of a Chilean Dreyfus. So, in 91, my mom and I were able to track him and we went to visit him in a sleepy town south of Santiago. He owned a small optometry shop and he lived in a small apartment right above it with his wife. It was a fraught meeting. He was a broken man, a man to whom the army, the institution to which he belonged and to which he devoted his entire life, not only betrayed him, but expelled him out of his ranks. He was very apologetic at the meeting. He was sure that we were angry and bitter, and he couldn't comprehend that we had come with a different purpose, to be grateful for his brave deed, which, in those days, in real time, we didn't know how to appreciate. We didn't understand its hidden meaning. Towards the end of the meeting, he reminded mom, Tell me, how did you have the courage, or perhaps the stupidity, to swallow that piece of paper? Do you know that any other officer would have shot you on the spot for this kind of act? We searched with candles for everyone who escaped, and here you are, eating paper that, on the face of it, may contain important information. For me personally, this meeting was very important in order to understand that not everything is black and white, that there were also people from within the army who opposed the military coup and the crimes against humanity that its perpetrators committed, and that they paid with their lives or careers for their humanitarian position. After my father's trial, we were indeed allowed to return to Santiago. It was a tense and delusional journey of 1,200 kilometers in my mother's white, tiny Fiat 124 on roads that only military forces traveled. We were armed with the officer's permission on a handwritten note, not at all sure if they would honor it if and when we were detained with a white flag waving through the window for the entire trip. In the car were a woman, her three children, and one young doctor, a stranger we didn't know, whom we were asked to give a ride back to Santiago by that same officer. A woman in complete uncertainty, whose husband has just been sentenced to 13 years in prison, but there was no guarantee that he will be sent to the prison in Santiago, nor that he would arrive there safely. On that day, September 11th, 1973, our lives changed completely. We became the family of a political prisoner, a marked family, without rights, without a livelihood, a family that detectives followed everywhere, a family that many of our acquaintances, friends and family distanced themselves from us like fire because they were afraid of being identified as helping us. Yet we still considered ourselves 
lucky compared to others who had already been murdered and disappeared. We had hope. All efforts were concentrated from that moment on in converting the prison sentence to a punishment of political exile, that we could leave the whole family together with my dad, efforts that included countless inquiries and meetings with journalists and diplomats from abroad in order to create international pressure for his release. I think we will stop here this episode of Where Were You That Day? And you, where were you that day? Where did it catch you? If you want, you can write to me and tell me where were you on the day of Rabin's assassination or 9-11 or any other significant day that changed your life to one degree or another. I would be very happy. Write and tell me. Thank you for listening and being here today. Let's hop one more time into our time machine and meet in the next episode. Thank you.